0: By the way, I just opened to a random page in Faye Resnick's book and my eyes were immediately drawn to the sentence, not long after our night at Don Henley's. (laughs) I really appreciate that Don Henley appears periodically as like a ghost of the feast in our shows.
1: Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where every episode is a content warning for the sequel episode.
0: Oh god. Because
1: it sounds like yeah. this story is just getting darker and darker as we tell it. Yeah,
0: it is. It is. And so what's coming is more of what we've heard and 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 worse. Yes, we're just setting
1: expectations Traumatized.
0: Uh, well, yeah. Well, we're just we're all going to go through this together. So yes. you know, come with us if you can.
1: I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post.
0: I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the Satanic Panic. If
1: you'd like to support the show, we are on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash. You're wrong about.
0: And today we're doing Nicole Brown Simpson Part Two. Part Two. So, Mike, what have we learned so far?
1: Okay, so last episode. Oh, you're ready. Oh yeah. You're
0: like. I prepared. I've been looking forward to this all week. I feel like I'm Holland Taylor and legally blonde (laughs) in your Elle Woods after doing your like (laughs) treadmill study session in my favorite scene.
1: So last episode, we met Nicole Brown Simpson, who was 18 and five months when she met OJ Simpson. 18 and five weeks. 18 and five weeks. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. And they got together together. Pretty quickly, and they spent, I believe it was eight years in a courtship period mm-hmm. where his abuse of her was getting more and more severe, and his apologies to her were getting more and more extravagant. And his final offering to her when we left this story was he offers to get married after a period of abuse. So to apologize, he offers to get married to Nicole, and that's where we left it.
0: Because he's already bought her a Porsche. Yes. I want I want to tell you about something that, to me personally, is the most haunting detail about Nicole and OJ's wedding. Okay, <laughs> which is a very random and arbitrary thing. But there's footage of their wedding in OJ Made in America, and there's just this tiny little scene of them, of OJ and Nicole and their guests dancing to "Jump for My Love" by the Pointer Sisters. Okay, it's like this. It's this very joyful song about like letting love into your heart. And we talked in the last episode about Nicole believing that once OJ married her, like he wouldn't cheat on her anymore, which is what she's really focused on and what she talks to her friends about. She doesn't talk to people hardly at all about the physical abuse, Mm. but she talks to them about being frustrated that he's constantly unfaithful to her. Mm. And as they're getting ready to get married, he's like, yes, like (laughs) once we are married... I won't cheat on you,
1: right? The promise that has been made like ten billion times in human history and kept like four times.
0: <laughs> but it's just like this. This it's this moment of like them dancing to this joyful, stupid song about idealistic, joyful, loving, and it just feels like if you marry someone and dance to that song at your wedding, like they shouldn't be able to kill you <laughs> later <laughs> on. Like that, just shouldn't be Jesus allowed to happen. Uh, Jesus, Sarah. <laughs> but, <laughs> well obviously you're not allowed to kill people anyway like legally but it just feels like if that do you, you know what i mean it's like that it, that's what is so discordant about abusive relationships mm-hmm. is that there was this like this beautiful moment and then everyone was a part of it and people talk about how it was this amazing wedding people stayed and danced for 12 hours mm-hmm. there's footage of it in oj made in america that's like this beautiful moment where OJ has a a microphone and Nicole is a little ways away from him and she's wearing this beautiful, like very bridal, very like princessy dress that she like wouldn't let anyone look at before the wedding because she was a superstitious, old fashioned bride. And so there's footage of him at the wedding kind of giving this speech to her Mm -hmm. saying like, Nicole, you brought love into my home. The quality of it is really grainy, but like you can tell that she's just like beaming, like just like beaming her face off. So she believes it. (sighs) yeah and i watched it and he seems so sincere Mm -hmm. according to you know whatever my my metric of sincerity is but i was watching and i was like well what does that mean i mean is this oj the pitch man or is this him expressing his emotions in the moment or does he know the difference or Mm -hmm. you know does he feel this degree of love and gratitude for her at times and then just at other times right his his abusiveness takes over or is none of this genuine or some of it or like and that's I think the frustrating thing about this and why people are maybe (sighs) remain in the dark about how abusive a relationship can be if on the other side it has these beautiful and highly convincing (laughs) whatever's going on displays of of affection
1: right I have had various friends in abusive relationships and it does seem like sort of what keeps you there is that the affection and the apologies and the emotions are actually very genuine or at least they feel very genuine. I mean, what seems to characterize mm-hmm. domestic abusers is that they are authentic, right? That their their anger is authentic, right. but also their apologies are authentic and their remorse is authentic. And their sort yeah. of overstated declarations of love are also authentic, because if they weren't authentic, you wouldn't stay.
0: I mean, the thing is that it's very childlike behavior. Yeah, it's just exactly. That, okay, it's just that you can't have a child who's 6'2 and made out of pure muscle right. and who treats right. you like a a stuffed animal. Yeah. It's all toddler behavior, mm-hmm. I think, a lot of the time. It's mm-hmm. like this... Rage that doesn't know its own strength. And then yeah. just like unconditional proclamations of affection and out of control remorse. Right. Right. And like needing to be taken care of by right. the person you've just hurt. Right. I mean, there's
1: obviously a manipulative element to abuse, too. But there's also this genuine, these emotions flinging back and forth and they're genuine emotions on both sides.
0: Yeah. And I feel like great liars are great liars because they believe what they're saying in the moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And people describe O.J. Simpson as a consummate liar. Oh, really? I can believe that at his wedding, leading up to his wedding, based on all the proclamations he made, not just to Nicole, but to their friends, to people's, mm-hmm. you know, people in their social circle had this Genuine belief, not just leading up to the wedding, but then after they got married, after they separated, as they were trying to reconcile, a lot of people talk in Sheila Weller's book and elsewhere about like, well, we just really wanted them to be together. And when they talked about breaking up, we encouraged them to reconcile. I mean, not everyone did that, but a lot of people after the fact were like, I feel so bad now because I encouraged Nicole to work it out with OJ because we wanted, you know, this family that we love to be a part of to get back together because they had this... This abundant, beautiful lifestyle, these great parties, they did Easter egg hunts and like took big, lavish vacations and just Mm -hmm. had lots of family gatherings and sort of gathered in their friends and their community. And people wanted that to, they didn't want it to go away. Right, right. (laughs) You know? So I can believe that in the wedding, you know, we we can believe in a scenario where during this wedding, he believed every word of what he was saying. He believed he was going to be faithful. He believed he wasn't going to hit her anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And where everything that happened still happened, because I think I've noticed listening to previous episodes that I'm always sighing in the middle of sentences. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) I need to work on breathing. But (laughs) to me, it's important to acknowledge that often the worst harms are carried out by people who are incapable of facing Mm -hmm. their ability to cause harm. Yeah. And so
1: is there sort of an immediate counter narrative foreboding after the wedding? I mean. Does he kind of revert back to his old ways quickly?
0: It absolutely returns to the way it, it was before. And it's possible that it immediately gets worse because okay. at the time that they get married, Nicole is already pregnant. Oh. We also know that she's had at least two abortions oh, okay. before this pregnancy. Her abortions are going to be tabloid fodder pretty soon.
1: Yeah. Does, does he know about the abortions?
0: I haven't read anything that says that specifically, but... There's a later incident where she's early in her pregnancy with their son. Mm -hmm. So they've already had their daughter, Sydney, who Mm -hmm. she's a little bit pregnant with at the wedding. Mm -hmm. And she comes home with Sydney from Disney on ice. And RJ starts attacking her and yelling at her and telling her to have an abortion. Jesus. Okay. so. Right. You can extrapolate from that. Right. But during her pregnancy with Sydney, OJ gets really fixated on basically the fact that she gains weight. No. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, uh, it's kind of weird to be like, man, what a dick. Because like we've already established that he's like violent. (laughs) But like this is an extra layer of dickery.
0: But But I feel like the mundane details are like we can it's we can see other stuff yeah. do that somehow that's just wild though because
1: like that's what your body is supposed to do <laughs> when you have yeah. a living creature inside of it like of course you're gaining weight and also like if you love somebody it's fine if they gain weight come on
0: right <laughs> right yes to all that and but he apparently believes that she should only gain the amount that the baby weighs oh really oh so she should gain yeah. like nine pounds and that's it yeah, oh my God. she says seven. She says he said seven pounds. She doesn't even get the amount of weight that like a, a healthy baby weighs. Oh. Like it's a, She can she can gain a small baby. <laughs> I was oh, a month Jesus. early and I weighed seven pounds like she can gain an early baby. So she spends the pregnancy like getting criticized by him. Yeah. And it's so petty. And yeah. he, you know, just is constantly calling her fat, calling her a fat pig. Jesus fucking Christ. Saying, look at your arms. Look at your legs.
1: I mean, can I just say one thing? One thing I've learned from reading many interviews and sort of researching a lot of weight stuff over the last couple years is that Mm -hmm. there is no weight at which a woman cannot be made to feel fat. No. I mean, you hear about women that are, like, literally models saying, like, oh, I have some, like, extra skin on the back of my arms or something like that. Like, there's, yeah. there's no level of beauty at which somebody doesn't have insecurities, and those insecurities cannot be weaponized, right? That, like, imagine saying to Nicole Brown Simpson at <laughs> age 20, whatever she was, like, you're fat or, like, you're not attractive. Like, it is unfathomable on any objective scale, and yet just because of the way that women are socialized, no matter their beauty, it's like you can always make somebody feel like shit about their looks, no matter what.
0: Mm -hmm. And also it's like the objective reality doesn't matter. Like he's the only person she really wants to make happy. Yeah, Yeah. And she can't. So like, it doesn't matter what she looks like. It matters how he treats her. Ugh. Yeah. So let me read you some of a letter that was introduced as evidence in uh, O.J. Simpson's civil trial. Mm -hmm. So this came out publicly many years later. Mm -hmm. It's undated, and O.J. testified that he never got the letter. So Mm -hmm. presumably she wrote it and then decided against sending it. Okay. And so she writes, O.J., I think I have to put this all in a letter. A lot of years ago I used to do much better in a letter. I'm going to try it again now. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to keep this letter if we split, so that you'll always know why we split. I'd also like you to keep it if we stay together, as a reminder. Right now, I am so angry. If I didn't know that the courts would take Sydney and Justin away from me if I did this, I would expletive every guy, including some that you know, just to let you know how it feels. Wow. I wish someone could explain all this to me. I see our marriage as a huge mistake and you don't. <laughs> I knew what went on in our relationship before we got married. I knew after six years that all the things I thought were going on were. All the things I gave into. All the I'm sorry for thinking that. I'm sorry for not believing you. I made up with you all the time and even took the blame many times for your cheating. I know this took place because we fought about it a lot and even discussed it before we got married with my family and a minister. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a wonderful wife. I believed you that it would finally be you and me against the world, that people would be envious or in awe of us because we stuck through it and finally became a real couple. You wanted a baby, so you said... And I wanted a baby. Then with each pound, you were terrible. You gave me dirty looks of disgust, said mean things to me at times about my appearance, and walked out on me and lied to me. In between Sydney and Justin, you say my clothes bothered you, that my shoes were on the floor, that I bugged you. Wow, that's so terrible. (laughs) There was also that time before Justin and a few months after Sydney. I felt really good about how I got back into shape. You beat the holy hell out of me, and we lied at the x-ray lab and said I fell off a bike. Ah, fuck. Great for my self-esteem. Then came the pregnancy with Justin, and oh, how wonderful you treated me again. I remember swearing to God and myself that under no circumstances would I let you be in that delivery room. (laughs) I hated you so much. And since Justin's birth and the mad New Year's Eve blow up, I don't see how our stories compare. I was so bad because I wore sweats and left shoes around and didn't keep a perfect house or comb my hair the way you liked it or had dinner ready at the precise moment you walked through the door. Or that I guess playing God on your nerves sometimes. I just don't see how that compares to infidelity, wife-beating, verbal abuse. I just don't think everybody goes through this. Gosh, she's a good writer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's
1: like a weird comment to make, but it's like, this is clearly like a smart woman who's very good at expressing how she feels.
0: Yeah, but then couldn't send the letter Mm. and then she says if i wanted to hurt you or had it in me to be anything like the person you are i would have done so after the illegible incident but i didn't even do it then i called the cops to save my life whether you believe it or not but i didn't pursue anything after that i didn't prosecute i didn't call the press and i didn't make a big charade out of it Mm. i waited for it to die down and asked for it too but i've never loved you since or been the same wow I agree after we married, things changed. We couldn't have housefuls of people like I used to have over in barbecue for because I had other responsibilities. I didn't want to go to a lot of events and I backed down at the last minute on functions and trips. I admit, I'm sorry. I just believe that a relationship is based on trust. And the last time I trusted you was at our wedding ceremony. It's just so hard for me to trust you again, even though you say you're a different guy. That OJ Simpson guy brought me a lot of pain, heartache. I tried so hard with him. I wanted so to be a good wife, but he never gave me a chance. Whoa. Is your heart just breaking?
1: (laughs) It's like the saddest thing is that she's still apologizing for stuff that is like normal stuff. Like I backed out of functions. Like, yeah, yeah, people do that.
0: Yes. And her sins are like she wore sweats.
1: Yeah. It's like, this is, your, that's the best part about being in your thirties. <laughs> it's like not just the wearing sweats, but like not having to feel bad about it. Yeah. Like, that's the point of being in a relationship is having like a sweats teammate.
0: Yes. That is the point of being in a relationship <laughs> in your thirties, wearing your yes. sweats and gaining over seven pounds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So tell me if this is totally wrong, but like, it sounds to me like the trajectory after she has Sydney is Mm -hmm. her outwardly sort of trying to keep him happy and trying to keep the abuse at bay. But as the relationship goes on, her feelings on the inside start to turn more and more against him. Because it's interesting that by the time she has the second kid, she says, I didn't want you in the delivery room.
0: Yeah. And he didn't get in there either.
1: Yeah. That implies she's realizing that she needs to leave this relationship even while she's sort of placating him. Yeah. Is that true?
0: Uh, Yeah. And I think probably what also happens is that there are periods where he will... After an outburst, be apologetic or Mm -hmm. be really loving. And she can kind of focus on that while it's happening. Mm -hmm. And then only when things get bad again, return to like, oh, God, like. Right. I might have to do something about this. Right. Right. But I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about it. And one of the things that I said in our episode part one that now will drive me nuts for the rest of my <laughs> life is that she was that OJ Simpson was in control of her life for slightly more than half of it. And that's not true. It's slightly less than half of it okay. is what I should have said, because she died right after she turned 35 and she met OJ right after she turned 18. Okay. So it was 17 years. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's terrible. That I make errors like that and call myself your podcast, your debunking podcast person. I mean,
1: I know the standards are terrible in this field. Yes.
0: But let's talk about the abuse that escalates from the wedding in 1985 to the illegible incident that she's almost certainly talking about in this letter, which happened in 1989. Was this the New Year's Eve incident? Yes. Okay. So first of all, there's an incident in fall or winter of 1985. Okay. So just after their wedding. Well, they got married in February. So this is probably right after she had Sydney. Okay. According to Sheila Weller's Raging Heart, Nicole drives home from lunch and O.J. comes out and starts attacking the windshield of her car and hitting her car with a baseball bat. What the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Why is he doing this? I don't know. Okay. I don't know if the answer is out there. Because the thing is, too, it's like, it's never for any real reason. You know, the fake reason is always like, You embarrassed me in front of Frank Sinatra. You kissed Mm -hmm. a guy's cheek. Mm -hmm. You wore sweats. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, like she never does anything wrong to inspire these things. It's just I think it's just that he's in that place and he needs an excuse. Hmm. Wow. And so Nicole is terrified. She runs inside and calls the police and the patrolman who shows up is named Mark Furman. Holy shit. Really? (laughs) Yeah. What? Wow. Can you tell us real quick? Who is Mark Furman? What why is he going to be important later?
1: He will be the detective who investigates the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson in I don't know 10 more years or whenever it is.
0: It, yeah, in 9 years. In 9 years. And so he, you know, a decade after this will be useful to the defense team mm-hmm. because they also are able to establish that he is has a history of racist Speech. Right. What the defense makes of this visit that Furman pays to Nicole in 1985 is that A, he's incensed by the fact that he sees a white woman in a relationship with a black man. Ah. So the defense will allege that he saw this and that he remembered it and filed it away. And then when he was called to Nicole's house, and realized that she had been murdered and it was the same woman that he had seen nine years before that he decided to frame O.J. Simpson for that reason. Hmm. Okay. The problem with that theory, Mm -hmm. aside from various issues about how do you transport a bloody glove to a second location, et cetera, and so forth, Mm -hmm. is that Mark Furman was like fairly nonchalant. (laughs) about this call and seems to have remembered it mainly because it involved a famous person and he'd never been called to a famous person's huh. Wow! on a domestic dispute before.
1: So he showed up and he's like, hey, you're O.J. Simpson.
0: <laughs> so jumping ahead to 1995, Marcia Clark is questioning Mark Furman. Mm-hmm. Now, back in 1985, we were talking about you responded to the defendant's home on at 360 Rockingham pursuant to a call where you saw a woman crying leaning up against a Mercedes-Benz. Do you recall that testimony, sir? Yes, ma'am. Marcia says, did you ever fill out a report that described that event? No, I didn't. Now, you saw that the woman involved with Mr. Simpson was a white woman, didn't you? Yes. Did you take any steps to further investigate that incident? No. Did you make any effort to encourage that the defendant be prosecuted for it? No. Did you notify any news media about that incident? No, I didn't. Could you have called your supervisor to come and further investigate the incident? Yes. Did you? No, I didn't. Could you have interviewed Mr. Simpson concerning these incident, that incident? Yes. Did you? No. Could you have interviewed Nicole Brown concerning the incident? Yes. Did you? No. So.
1: God, I'm just hearing like the ride of the Valkyries in my head, just getting like more and more intense as like the tension in this exchange ramps up. <laughs>
0: how many people in the courtroom even felt that tension yeah. or were like, wow, he really should have done something. Yeah, And what Nicole says later is that the police dismiss it as a love spat. Oof. He's only taking a baseball bat to his own car, Oof. which he's allowed to do. I guess technically, yeah. And it's his own wife. Not technically, but... Well, Mark Furman, the statements he made in the past are very racist. Like, that's, that's true. He's capable of genocidally racist fantasies. Mm-hmm. But even within that, he wasn't moved to take this opportunity to arrest a black person. Mm. He knew who O.J. Simpson was. Uh, he later said that he remembered the incident because it was a celebrity incident. Right. It seems like in this case, celebrity w- was perhaps more powerful than racism even for Mark Furman. Right. Or the lack of seriousness attached to domestic violence played a role in that. Yeah. You know, maybe also if you're Mark Furman or if you're any racist LAPD cop, it's like property crime. That's a serious offense. Right. (laughs) Beating your wife. Right. I don't know. Well, I think,
1: I mean, I think we often have this way of talking about prejudice as if people only have one prejudice at a time Mm -hmm. you know one thing i've learned from reading up about white collar crime for the last almost year is that people have these prejudices against sort of corporate criminal like terrible enron type people but then we also have positive prejudices for sort of upstanding members of society and so a lot of Mm white-collar criminal trials are sort of like one side saying these are corporate wrongdoers. And then the other side saying, these guys coach a little league and they're fine. And so it's basically two (laughs) biases fighting against each other. And it seems like that's Mm -hmm. kind of happening here too, that he has a bias against, or maybe he has a bias against black people, but he also has a bias for rich people and celebrities. Yeah.
0: Or for sports stars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like
1: none of it is like defensible necessarily, but it's all, it's like these two things that are like, bringing a little red ball into like approval, disapproval, approval, disapproval, and it's all these like right. dumb instinctual forces pushing at it in different directions.
0: Yeah, it's such a weird twist of fate that Mark Furman, who yes later on will become so useful to the defense team that seeks to exonerate her husband, mm-hmm. will be called to the scene of a domestic abuse incident and not take it very seriously. Amazing. He ends up being useful to OJ twice, <laughs> right? Which has, should be a lesson to all racists. Sometimes. <laughs> Your racism will cause something to happen that you won't like. That's that's what I have for you today.
1: Racism is an only good. It can also it can also be bad if you're a racist.
0: Racism can have some unexpected consequences for you, the racist. Ever think about that?
1: It sounds like very few people well, you tell me. How many people were aware of the abuse or like, was anybody aware of the extent of the abuse?
0: I I don't know. I can't say this with any certainty, but it Mm -hmm. seems to me based on everything I've learned so far that that very few people knew there was physical abuse in the relationship Or or if they did, they thought that what they'd seen was an isolated incident or they laughed it off as like not like violent behavior, like, hmm. or people would see him rage at her, but not actually physically hurt her. Hmm. Or, you know, people didn't connect anger or emotional abuse to the possibility of physical violence. God. So I think it's like willful ignorance and a, and a lack of a lack of education about how these patterns appear. Mm. What's weird about it is that I imagine
1: many of these people would sort of in the abstract be against like wife beaters or the scum of society. But then it's like, Well, my buddy OJ's not a wife beater. Like, he just gets mad sometimes. And like, you know, he might have pushed her out of the car, but like, it seemed like maybe she fell too. Like, they find these ways of justifying why it's not wife beating.
0: And she was pushing his buttons. Once again, so many people say Nicole knew how to push OJ's buttons. Right, right. Which meant things like she gave him a hard time about cheating on her. Right. And like slapped him on, on occasions that other people observed. So they they were also, you know, because she wasn't completely passive all the time, people could see it as kind of a mutual dynamic if they wanted to. Yeah. It's just weird
1: how out in the open all this stuff was to some extent, or at least like the, the, the telltale signs of it were out in the open.
0: Yeah. It's actually a lot like Kitty Genovese, right? Because yeah. all the people in this friend group, this extended family group, it's not like they saw him beating her and all ignored it happily. It's mm-hmm. that a lot of people saw something hmm. but it it was enough that their confirmation bias could override it. Yeah. Or some people, you know, they really did see that it was a bad marriage. Right. And that she was unhappy and encouraged her to go, but just didn't understand all the ways that that right. the abuse presented.
1: And there's also a weird complicity in that it also encourages you when you see a little part of something not to talk about it with other people, Yeah, right? That if, if three or four of their friends had sat down and said, like, you know, I saw something kind of troubling. And then the other one would say, like, well, I saw something pretty troubling, too. And if you put together all of those friends' experiences, you actually would be able to paint a picture of what was really going on in the marriage, but because of cultural mores or just bias in favor of my buddy O.J.'s a good guy, nobody sits down and says, like, hey, guys, do you mind if we talk about this all together and like, let's figure out what we should do.
0: So a really great example of this kind of behavior and this kind of Rashomon effect is that Nicole and OJ and their friends are on vacation in Hawaii right before New Year's Eve of 1988. Okay. And according to OJ's friend Tom, who's quoted in Sheila Weller's book, There were these two homosexual guys sitting at a table next to us. Oh, my gosh. Now, Nicole liked to talk to certain types of people. Sometimes she would just pick people out. It was like OJ's thing, except he'd talk to anybody just to talk. Nicole was more selective. Mm -hmm. She did have a cool aloofness about her. Mm -hmm. Now, OJ, for one thing, does not like homosexuals. Right. And number two, the two of them had been going through their horrible AIDS conversations. Mm. And I'll add here that during Nicole's pregnancies, OJ had had escalated from just sleeping with all kinds of random women to having a long-term affair with tawny katane okay. which was also an escalatory thing between them because <laughs> keeping with the trend of love actually references things would happen like she found this beautiful jewelry that she assumed he had bought for her but really it was for tawny katane oh. and she later saw tawny wearing it oh. in a, a photo Ugh. I know. Wait, what's the, AIDS, what's the AIDS scare? So the AIDS conversations are because also during this time, Nicole is starting to refuse sex to OJ, which okay. really makes him mad. Mm-hmm. And to say, I'm really, really scared that you're going to get AIDS and you're going to give me AIDS hmm. because you refuse to be tested and you refuse to wear a condom with me or with anyone else. Jesus Christ. So it's like. A completely reasonable fear, right? It's kind of amazing that didn't happen. (laughs) Right. Aside from everything else we've talked about, she's living with, I think, a significant amount of anxiety Mm -hmm. that OJ is going to give her HIV. Jesus, okay. So the way that OJ's friend Tom remembers... This conversation uh, Nicole was having with the homosexuals is so one guy is sitting there and he's got lesions on his hands and he's talking about how this is his lover and he's dying. Nicole, who's holding Justin, is talking to them sympathetically. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching OJ and he's livid. Oh, shit. Denise, who is also there mm-hmm. <laughs> when Sheila Weller talks to her, is like, they didn't have lesions. <laughs> sure. And the reason perhaps that OJ's friend Tom is remembering it that way is because... One of the guys gives little baby Justin a kiss on the forehead, oh. and OJ gets furious oh. and grabs Justin and starts storming out to the parking lot. Oh, Jesus. And then Nicole follows. And according to Tom, quote, Nicole really started raising shit, screaming and yelling. It was embarrassing. Lou and Judy went, "Oh God, not again." But in Denise's interpretation, Nicole doesn't embarrass OJ. She leaves a bullying OJ. She says, we sat in OJ's rental car, Nicole and OJ in the front, me and AC in the back. They were fighting and OJ was screaming at Nicole. And then she said, I don't need to take this. And she got out of the car and got into my parents' car. Mm -hmm. And so we have an incident where the friend of the husband remembers him protecting his son from... a a guy with like weeping lesions on his body and then he's going out to the parking lot and his harpy of a wife is yelling at him and everyone's like oh no nicole yelling at oj again like right ways right classic nicole and denise is like didn't see any lesions yeah don't remember nicole yelling at him so (laughs) people remember things differently you know (laughs) When we see what we what we want to see we really do right and so back from Hawaii, Nicole and OJ go out on New Year's Eve with Marcus Allen, who mm-hmm. is a younger pro football player who is kind of OJ's protege, Okay, who kind of always flirts with Nicole and Nicole always shuts it down. But she kind of has told her friends, like, I really like Marcus Allen. I mean, okay. I would never do anything because I'm married and I respect the sacred bonds of marriage, but mm-hmm. I really like Marcus Allen. Mm-hmm. And so they go out to dinner and come back. And according to what Nicole says later about what happens when they come home, is that they've been drinking, they start fighting. Nicole has found a bracelet (laughs) that OJ bought for Tani Katane, so she's Mm -hmm. upset about that. Mm -hmm. And OJ telling his friends about it, according to Sheila Weller's book, doesn't say anything about the jewelry, but says that they start fooling around. And then, quote, when it came time for her to give me some head, she said no. Can you believe that shit? What? What happens after that escalates after he gets upset because she refuses him sex. And according to him, there's a mutual wrestling type situation. And according to her he punches her in the head and hits her
1: yeah mutual
0: wrestling
1: come on that's like me mutually wrestling with the rock
0: like when you're a woman and you refuse sex from someone who really wants to have sex with you and then you're like let's do mutual wrestling yeah. instead of the sex yeah <sighs> when you're trying to get someone to not have sex with you and you accomplish that by attacking them yeah so two police officers come to the door at three thirty. And here's the police report. Officers Maluski and Edwards received a 911 radio call. Female being beaten at 360 North Rockingham could be heard over the phone. Upon arrival, my partner and I could not enter the above location due to the locked electronic gates. My partner phoned the residence and was told by a housekeeper that everyone was fine and that police were not needed. Yeah. My partner told the housekeeper that we needed to speak with the victim to determine if she needed our assistance. A female, who's the housekeeper, said that everyone was fine and that we were not needed. I told her that I must see and speak to the woman who had dialed 911 and I would not leave until I did. And the 911 call is uh the operator answers and just hears screaming. Oh my god. In the background and the sound of someone being hit. It's Ah. Absolutely horrifying to listen Mm. to. Mm. So Officer Edwards is arguing with the housekeeper and trying to get into the residence. And then the report continues. About that time, Nicole Simpson came running out of some bushes near her house. She was wearing only a bra and sweat type pants. She had mud down the right leg of her pants. She ran across the driveway to a post containing the gate release button. She collapsed and pushed the button hard several times. Jesus, it's like out of a fucking horror movie. Yeah, another theme for us. She was yelling during this time, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. As she said this the gate opening, she ran out to me. She grabbed me and hung on to me. She cried nervously and she repeated, he's going to kill me. I asked her who was going to kill her. She replied, OJ. I did not know this was O.J. Simpson's home, but at this point I felt she might have meant O.J. Simpson. I asked her, do you mean O.J. Simpson, the football player? Oh, my God. It's like, is that, how relevant is that at this very moment in time, I wonder? I mean, is it, it, I guess, I guess it's, I mean, you do need to know, but like, focus on her for a second, maybe? I don't know.
1: I'm not a cop. It's like, hey, I follow him on Instagram. Like, maybe now's not the time, (laughs) Steve.
0: And then the report continues. Nicole Simpson told us that the suspect, her husband, O.J. Simpson, had beaten her up. She stated that he had slapped her with both open and closed fists, kicked her with his feet, and pulled her hair. Nicole Simpson also stated that the suspect, O.J. Simpson, yelled, I'll kill you. Mm. Officer Edwards, I asked her if he had a gun. She said he's got lots of guns. Yikes. You know, she's she's visibly injured. There's cuts and, and bruises and the imprint of a hand on her neck.
1: Right. This is not a he said, she said situation. This is like anyone looking at the situation would be like, holy shit, this dude's trying to kill her.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, when someone attacks you and they beat you up and, and they say, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. I mean, they're not yeah. being Subtle. Yes. There's no subtext there. And Nicole is, you know, talking to the police. And according to the report, she kept saying, you never do anything about him. You talk to him and then leave. I want him arrested. I want him out so I can get my kids. Mm -hmm. At around this time, O.J. Simpson appears. He yells, I don't want that woman sleeping in my bed anymore. I got two women and I don't want that woman in my bed anymore. And then the police tell him that Nicole wants him arrested He starts yelling that he did not beat her up. And he says, the police have been out here eight times before, and now you're going to arrest me for this. This is a family matter. Why do you want to make a big deal out of it? We can handle it. Jesus. And then they allow him to go inside and get dressed, and he flees and gets in his car and drives away. So, uh, okay, and then what do they do? They took five units out looking for him, but they couldn't find him. And Nicole at this point has... Signed a crime report and has her injuries photographed at the West L.A. police station. Mm. This is more than has ever happened before. Okay, In terms of police involvement, in terms of in terms of like witnesses. Hmm. So is this the New Year's Eve incident that she's talking about in her letter? This is the New Year's Eve incident. Okay, And this is the one that also seemed to have changed things for her.
1: What happens after this? Do they just like... Good luck. See you next time. Like what? What's the aftermath of this? Well,
0: it's. I mean, it's. It's like her resolve is slowly eroded Mm -hmm. because OJ comes back and she has him staying in the guest house. Okay. For like three months, but he's on the property. Okay. She has Denise come over and take pictures of her injuries as well as the police photos, and she shows them to her dad. Okay. And according to Sheila Weller's book, he's like, well you can make it work. No fucking way. Really? At this point? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's based on some understanding of marriage that I don't understand. Yeah. Right. I think it's yeah. based on the idea that like, if you marry someone, then like you have to stay married to them. Right. And also, I guess this, you know, that like, if you don't know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who you literally fear could kill you, then like mm. you can't know what it's like yeah. to feel yeah. that way. I yeah. think that's probably also true.
1: It's so weird to put like the institution of marriage above the
0: actual experience of someone in a marriage. Yeah. And so after this, Nicole also starts talking to Ron Shipp, who's a friend of OJ's who works for the LAPD. Mm-hmm. And he starts talking to her and helping her out and becomes kind of an ally to her. But he's still OJ still has his highest allegiance, which is, you know, yeah. continuing that theme. Yeah. She tells him she's scared that he's going to kill her one day. And Ron says, no, he won't. This is what happens over and over again. Yeah.
1: He's such a nice guy, he's my buddy O. J. He could never do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or cause I mean, really it's it's fair also that like all of us as people I sure I'm sure have a bias where we we like to imagine or we like to assume that the people that we love couldn't kill anyone. Right. That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean in general it is, but No, it's not. Anyone could kill someone. It's just that the conditions of our lives generally don't push us to that. But like mm. If I move around a certain number of factors in your life, I can get you to kill someone.
1: That's true. I do get really mad when people count their pennies in front of me at the grocery store.
0: (laughs) I think we all systematically
1: underestimate the extent to which our behaviors are affected by our circumstances in like a million long and short term ways. But I mean, from what I know about crime from researching this white collar crime article for so long, is that most crimes from premeditated securities fraud to like domestic abuse, crimes of passion type thing are very, very circumstantial. And that Hmm. very few criminologists believe in this idea of like good people and bad people. It's just there's clearly individuals matter, but the circumstances tend to matter far more.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and the fact that most murders are just so boring, you know, most people are on death row because... You know, they did something like shooting a clerk during an armed robbery for some tiny amount of money. Right. That's just youth and impulsivity and possibly substances and possibly desperation. And yeah, most instances of a human taking another human's life are for, you know, not for unique or Mm -hmm. dramatic reasons. Right. Right. Yeah. And so all that, you know, speaks to the way that Nicole and OJ's friend Ron Ship, who's literally a police officer, you know, doesn't recognize the killer in his midst because he's not the right. killer in his midst until after he's killed people. And right. Right. then there you are. Hmm. I mean, this is a, the aftermath of this is interesting because she ultimately, ultimately not much comes of it. She doesn't go public. Hmm. She seems to think about it. And she tells Ron Ship that she has photos that she she's thought about sending to the National Enquirer hmm. or that she's going to maybe send to them if, if he ever beats her again. But, you know, I mean, she has these desires, but she also still wants to make it work and is and is afraid of leaving. As we mentioned in the last episode, she doesn't want OJ to lose any of his endorsements. Mm-hmm. And so she actually at one point gets on the phone with Hertz and tells him that it, it was not a big deal and that they shouldn't take his endorsement away. No way. Yeah. Whoa. And they don't want to. And so they don't, you know, like they have every incentive to believe what she tells them because Mm -hmm. he's been the face of their company for over a decade at this point. Right. You know, and that's worked out very well for everyone involved. So
1: it's also so dark to think about what would have happened if she had come forward. Because it's not clear, like, that would have made things any better.
0: Like, would anyone have listened to her? Would anyone have cared? It's
1: not even clear to me that he would have lost his endorsement if she would have come forward, because it would have been seen as a he said, she said thing. The media would have discredited her. She would have been cast as, like, a ditzy, model, brainless, blah, 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 in the way that, like, this is the entire theme of our show of, like, she would have been tarred as sort of out to get him or out to get money or trying to position herself for a lucrative divorce or something. And then he would have done his like, Mm -hmm. I'm OJ, I'm a nice guy shtick, And like, it probably would have worked. I mean, he had a huge fan base. And I don't think anybody in the public would have seen this as an escalation of existing activities because they had no
0: idea of all the signs of this earlier. Those exact tactics worked extremely well when he was on trial for killing her yeah so yeah exactly. And there was a lot more evidence of domestic abuse after the murder <laughs> than before, yeah, so yeah, it's extremely reasonable yeah. to imagine all that happening that he would he would o j his way out of everything, so why? Why cause yourself that pain if nothing will be different? And if you only hurt yourself.
1: Yeah. But then she does eventually leave him, though, right? So is this the incident that precipitates the separation?
0: Not really. They don't separate for a while. Hmm. I think it's it's maybe not a turning point, but a crucial, Hmm. or maybe it is a turning point. I don't know. But it seems crucial in some way because Mm -hmm. she starts talking to Ron Ship about the abuse and Ron Ship teaches about domestic violence two other police officers. And so he and Nicole start talking about abuse dynamics. Wait, so he's like a domestic abuse specialist? Within the LAPD. What? Yes. Think about the fact that like this is, (laughs) there are some top minds involved and they weren't helpful ultimately. You know, they were a little helpful, but, but not as much as was needed. So again, like the question of like, why didn't she ask for help? And it's like, well, she did. Yeah. Like a lot of times... And it's like we can't put the responsibility on her or on any other abuse yeah. victim to, like, always be the one who advocates for themselves, to always be in an active position here. Like, you, we, you can't ask people to always know that they need the help that they need. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, we often don't, actually. It's wild to me
1: that an expert in this, somebody who knows the field and knows, like, the academic research, presumably, wouldn't have just said, get the fuck out of there. It's never going to get better, and it's only going to escalate. And this has been going on for, whatever, 10 years now. And, like, it's not going to change, so you need to leave. It's crazy to me that he was just like, well, O.J. seems like a nice guy. You should probably stick with it. I mean, that's just unfathomable or it's extremely fathomable but you know
0: <laughs> it's fathomable but it's deep yeah i mean i think he feels that way partially but i think he feels conflicted about it and also and oj is his friend yeah ron ship is in like a kind of low-level friendship with oj hmm. like he does yeah. a lot of favors for him he runs yeah. license plates for him like he mm. he does stuff for him right so the consequences to oj ultimately, for the New Year's Eve beating, end up being a $470 fine, which is significantly less than I spent on car maintenance last week, (laughs) and 120 hours of community service, which he also ends up kind of OJing his way through a little bit because he does, like, celebrity fundraising as opposed to, like you know, manual labor or something.
1: Is the police report of this available? Like, is there any news coverage of this? Of like, because our court documents are public, right? So like, wouldn't there have been some
0: news coverage? There's a little bit of coverage at the time, but there's just not very much interest in it. Right. What Chris Jenner later says, Chris Jenner, who is at the time Chris Kardashian, is that after they reconcile, which OJ is in the guest house January to March 89 and then moves back into the main house in April. And they mm-hmm. kind of come back together then Chris Jenner says that after that Nicole had really just kind of given up given up on resisting getting back together with him <sighs> like given up on trying to make the marriage better basically like she <laughs> didn't talk about trying to get him to stop cheating anymore wow but maybe like she also reached the kind of rock bottom of like acknowledging how bad it was God. and starting to try and get away <sighs> so she starts making plans to leave OJ according to Sheila Weller in 1991 and OJ doesn't really take it super super seriously, he starts off describing it to people as a phase and says, that you know, she can go off, she can party, she can do whatever. But if she ever has sex with anyone else, then he can't take her back.
1: God, the density of just like toxic bullshit in this relationship is incredible. It's like <laughs> from which no light can escape.
0: I think it shows that in, in some really basic way, he's the only real person to himself. Like yeah. he, it doesn't connect for him that she has feelings. Right. Or that, like, she hurts the way he hurts. That's
1: probably behind so much domestic abuse, too. Just this, like, failure of object permanence.
0: Yeah. You know, or you have some awareness of the other person's feelings, but your feelings are so much bigger than theirs, you know. But anyway, Nicole starts, she establishes friendship with uh, her friend Robin Greer in early 1991, specifically because she's a single woman and she, like, calls her and says she's ending her marriage and she wants hmm. to know single women and, you know, be among them. Yeah. So they get divorced in 1992. So three years after the New Year's Eve incident. Yes. Previously, Nicole had signed a prenup that took seven to nine months to iron out. Oh, wow. Which meant that she did not get. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much 1992 money is, but OK, hung on to most of the assets. Let's put it that way. Hmm. She got child support. She got a condo in San Francisco that he owned. He hung on to the main house. Okay. So she moves to a place pretty close by OJ's to, you know, stay close by for the kids. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, they're they're pretty enmeshed. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of processes the divorce by first being in denial and then swearing that he's going to get her back. And... Okay. Calling Nicole, according to a former babysitter, 10 or 15 or 20 times a night oh, shit. over and over again. And also starting to show up in the bushes outside of her house. Literally? Yeah, literally. Literally. Her friends call it Bush syndrome.
1: What the fuck? Like literally wait outside and see if like cars are arriving or leaving, kind of thing.
0: No, I think he. It might be that he he goes there when he knows he's there with a date. Okay. Or he he might he might just also be there generally. I really don't know, Mike. We don't know. There are <laughs> things. There's it's might be lost knowledge. Like he might just be out there a lot. He might just be there when she's sitting there like reading a book,
1: clipping her toenails. Wow. <laughs> it's so fucking weird. I mean. Uh... I mean, this is clearly coming from my own place of like never having experienced one of these relationships myself. But it just seems like, I don't know, it's like Nicole can't do anything right. It's like when she's there, she gets abused. And then when she's not there, she gets abused.
0: Yeah, of course she can't do anything right. Yeah. So she has this kind of year out and Mm -hmm. she starts spending more time with friends, doing a little bit of partying. Mm -hmm. She has this house on gretna greenway with a pool and eventually this guy kato kalen who she meets at aspen moves into the guest house there and pays reduced rent in exchange for looking after her kids when she needs a, a babysitter
1: oh So Kato Kalin was her friend and not O.J.'s friend? Uh Uh-huh. Oh. I thought he was like a weird O.J. hanger-on. Okay.
0: Well, that's what he becomes. But he met Nicole um, at Aspen when she and Faye Resnick were there partying. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. according to Faye, Nicole wasn't interested in him romantically, but was interested in his friend Grant. But they kind of became friends. And Kato Kalin, as he became famous for during the trial, has this kind of like labradoodle quality To him, he's kind of like a, he's like a doofy guy. Yeah. But he's also very, he's strong and fit. And he, at the time that Nicole was running nine miles a day, he used to run 10. They would like run into each other while they were jogging. Wow. And so when Nicole is living on Gretna Greenway in this house where, you know, OJ's face will sometimes show up in the window it's nice to have the spare guy around yeah does oj just fucking loathe kato Kaelin at this point he doesn't feel great about it but he mm-hmm. like maintains good relations with him huh. the kids love him so much that they name their new dog kato oh wow which kato Kalin says becomes confusing because <laughs> <laughs> someone will be like kato and he's like yeah <laughs> oh <laughs> She sees Dr. Susan Forward, who's a therapist who also specializes in the study of abusive relationships, and Nicole Mm -hmm. starts reading... Dr. Forward's Men Who Hate Women and the Women Who Love Them. Oh, I've heard of this book. Yes. And she later on will keep multiple copies of the same book by Dr. Forward in her home so that she can like never panic and be without a copy. She can like just grab one, whatever room she's in. So what Dr. Forward tells Nicole is that she has to completely cut off OJ. It's over. No more contact. No more taking his calls. No more kind of taking the chamberlain approach to appeasing hitler yeah which is what she's been doing yeah and what she says is you know no like she's gonna taper i just what i'm gonna say is is gonna be so horribly tragically predictable i just feel bad even for saying it but what she says is that you know she thinks that if she does if she gives oj what he wants now then he will back off and leave her alone later uh, and that she can't cut him off all of a sudden because that would hurt his feelings oh man and you know she's right to think that Doing that would potentially cause him to be dangerous. Yeah. Because ultimately, that does seem to be why in the end things escalate. Yeah. So, I mean, the most interesting part of the the divorce is that they, they reconcile for a while. Oh. In early spring of 1993, you know, Nicole has been out on her own for about a year now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She starts talking to her friends about, you know, I just, I want to go home. I miss being home. Sure. Like this isn't my home. I want to go back to Rockingham. I want to go back to being a family and uh, things being the way that they used to be, you know, sure. cause the good stuff gets bigger when you're, yeah. when you're away from it. And by this time, OK actually has moved on. Or at least for the time he has. And he's hmm. gotten serious about this woman, Paula Barbieri, who he's mm-hmm. dating, who's a mm-hmm. model who people occasionally mistake for Julia Roberts. So like okay. things have shaken out pretty well for him. Yeah. And at a certain point, you know, she's the one who's calling him and he's the one who's not wanting to take her calls.
1: Interesting.
0: And she makes copies of their, their wedding video to send to him to remind him of the good times. Wow. And I guess launches a full full charm offense of trying to get him back Hmm. and ultimately in april of 93 she shows up at rockingham and she like drives up to the gate and is like okay okay let me in (laughs) and he doesn't want to let her in and he comes out and they walk around the neighborhood and she tells him i want to come home and at the end of that walk they decide to make Another try. And that lasts for a year. They're together off and on for, for another year after that. Wow.
1: What does he do with the Julia Roberts-looking lady?
0: <laughs> the poor Julia Roberts-looking lady is um, basically when he's trying to make things work with Nicole, he wants nothing to do with her. And then, you know, when things get difficult, he yeah kind of wants her again. I have been the Julia Roberts-looking lady to so many people. <laughs> Oh, oh, realizing this now you're surrounded by jason alexanders and you deserve a richard gear <laughs> <laughs> but the simpsons have another one of their classic terrible holiday events when they're going to the Jenner's christmas eve party in 1993 when nicole finds a holiday gift basket from paula and gets upset oh and oj's like It's just a gift basket. Leave me alone. Why would you assume that a gift basket means I'm seeing her? You're the only woman in my life. Mm -hmm. And then they go to the party and a guy named Joseph, who Nicole had had a brief relationship with after Mm -hmm. she divorced OJ, is at the party and OJ cannot handle it. Oh, no. And once the guy... You know, just is like, how could Nicole do this to me? How could Nicole Ugh. have sex with this person who I was later reminded of the existence of? Like, yeah. how could she do this to me? Yeah you know, and it's <laughs> and it's totally the logic of a little baby, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I feel like the so much abusive behavior is just like the way that little babies get angry at their mothers for not being able to, like, control the sun and the rain. he's yeah, angry yeah. at Nicole for all this stuff. yeah, yeah, also at the time of the holiday party. There's also tension because Nicole is upset because she has made plans to move from the Gretna Green house to another house in Brentwood on Bundy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which it's very weird to me that a major place name in this story is Bundy and no one at the time ever talked about it. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like she moved to like John Wayne Gacy Avenue. But she's she's upset at OJ because now that she's moving to this house that doesn't have a guest house, OJ is like, Cato, like, I really don't think it would be right for you to be you know, living in a house with my ex wife. Right. You know, because a man and a woman living together, it's just improper. And also, she's asking you for rent. You can live in my house free. And Cato, in his telling, is like, okay. And just kind of obliviously, you know, moves in with OJ. Oh, and okay. Nicole never talks to him again.
1: What? Really?
0: Yeah. He was a man huh. who she had in the house who who was protection against this guy who she was physically afraid of and he just for a few hundred dollars in rent money because OJ once again like flashed his OJ charm and Kato mm-hmm. just immediately melted and and was like, sure. Wow. You know? Like didn't stand up for her at all. Didn't even maybe think that he had the capacity to do that or that she mm-hmm. needed it. Like maybe it was just Clueless about how how bad things were. Yeah. Did he know about the abuse? Th- this is actually a, a good time to have you listen to something for me. Ooh, OK. I'm g- I want to do a Grizzly Man with you. Oh, God. Because there's audio of the 911 call that oh, no. Nicole Brown Simpson makes in 1993 from the house oh. at Gretna Green. Oh, God.
1: It's going to bum me out so much.
0: It will. <sighs> I'm going to have you watch it and just relay your reactions to it. OK. Because... I don't wanna play it here, but I wanna just do something to convey kind of what it is like as a adult human being who can who confronts a lot of human trauma for a living mm-hmm. to witness
1: this. I'm stealing myself right now.
0: I'm sending it to you on the Skype thing. Oh, there it is. Okay.
1: Okay. Nine one one call by Nicole Simpson. Okay. It's two minutes and thirty six seconds long. I'm starting it now. She's saying he's back, please. Oh, he's in a white Bronco. He's at the gate. Oh, God. Oh, no, they're asking if he's the sportscaster.
0: Yeah. Uh, Although I like how this lady sounds unimpressed. Oh, man. Oh, my God. He's going to beat the shit out of me.
1: Dispatcher's asking if he has any weapons. Uh, he went home. Now he's back. I don't want anything to happen. She's like really distraught. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Oh God, he just broke the back door in. I tried to get him out of the bedroom because my kids are sleeping in there. Oh my God, there's yelling in the background. Holy shit. Oh, and she's saying the kids are sleeping and he's screaming. Yeah. Oh my God. Holy shit. You can't really tell what he's saying, but it's something like you don't mean shit to me or something. Oh, my God. Fucking hell. The dispatcher asks, is he upset? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and then it ends when she says it always comes back. Fucking hell. That sucked.
0: Yeah, I just did that to you. I'm oh, sorry. Fuck. Now you have to play that tape for three teens and then you won't die in a week. <laughs> oh, my
1: God. God, it's just horrible. It's like right there. It's like right there in front of you how enraged he is.
0: Yeah. Like you can't really hear that much of what he's saying. Right. She's saying, you know, okay, please be quiet. The kids are sleeping. Yeah. And there's uh, so many stories of like this going on, you know, and her trying to, to keep him down because she doesn't want the kids to hear it or she doesn't want the kids to see him be abusive mm. to her. And what he's talking about in the background is that, well, why does it matter if the kids are sleeping and he's making noise if she once gave a blowjob to a guy named Keith when the kids were sleeping upstairs, which he Ooh. knows about because he was spying on them at that time. Holy shit. Really? Yeah. Dude.
1: Ah.
0: Which is like one of the key issues that he fixates on. Ah. So did this happen before they got back together? Is that what he's mad about or did this happen recently? Well, she and Keith was after the divorce before the reconciliation. Okay, so this is like a while back. Now. Yeah, and I, no, it is. It is. It's history. Um and after they get back together, he also is like, "Let's clear the air. I'll tell you about all my sexual oh. partners and you tell me about yours." and then we'll have a clean slate and I definitely Ugh. won't hang it over your head for the rest of your life. Dude. And guess this thing of like, you know, that that he's using the kids. Right. As a wedge. Right. Which is going to be a theme from now on. That like, it's not that he's expressing ownership of her. It's not that he's being angry and, vi- and violent and possessive. It's that it's the kids. Right. How can she possibly parent and have sex at the same time? It's impossible.
1: It's like, this isn't about... The affordable housing that's being built, it's about preserving neighborhood character.
0: And so to answer your question about Cato and does he know about the abuse, mm-hmm. something I only learned when I read a book called Cato Kalin: Colin, The Whole Truth, okay. is that Cato Kalin shows up at the house while this is going on. Oh, my God. While, the con- while this 911 call is in progress. Jesus. OK, what does he do? To quote from Cato Kalin: The Whole Truth. At first, Cato decided to stay out of it and went into the guest house. Before he closed the door, however, he took another look to make sure Nicole was all right and realized that OJ was still in a rage. OJ's yelling became louder as he moved closer to her. Ugh. Kato decided he had to do something after all. Sure enough, as soon as OJ saw Kato coming, he turned and continued his harangue, shouting as if he were trying to somehow convince Kato that he, OJ, were really the wronged party in all this. Mm-hmm. So he does actually, he, he helps out by distracting him. Right,
1: he's waving the flare in front of the Tyrannosaurus.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Cato uh, stays with them and then the police come and the police are like, what's going on? And who's this guy? Yeah. The cops are talking to OJ in a fairly friendly way. This is what Cato Kalen observes. Mm-hmm. And one of the police officers says, yeah, I'm married too. I know what you mean. No,
1: for fuck's sake.
0: One of the officers asked Cato if he can fix the French doors that O.J. has broken.
1: So is this the end of their reconciliation? Do they go back to being divorced again after this?
0: No. (laughs) Oh. I feel like it's like it's it's not that that they're, you know, like once she starts thinking about trying to divorce, it's like that takes a long time to build up to. Yeah. And then once they get divorced, like she decides she needs to go back and that they can make it work. And then she realizes, you know that they really can't. But that takes a long time. Yeah.
1: I have friends that have been in this cycle and it takes a long time for them to really believe that they're going to leave. It's it's a, Especially when there's kids involved, it's, it's understandable.
0: Yeah. So this is where I'm going to turn to the gospel of Faye Resnick. Is that a name? That's familiar to you? It sounds familiar, but who is she again? She was played by Connie Britton in The Ryan Murphy Show. Okay. She was a good friend of Nicole's, and she published Mm -hmm. a book co-written with a tabloid journalist named Mike Walker called Mm -hmm. Nicole Brown Simpson, The Private Diary of a Life Interrupted. Okay. And so Faye Resnick's book is interesting because she was a close friend of Nicole Brown Simpson Mm -hmm. and... Also, with someone who, according to her accounts, OJ called a lot when he and Nicole were on the outs. When okay. they were fighting, Nicole and OJ would both call her. And so she mm-hmm. has insight into him and seems also to be one of the people that he really didn't intimidate. Okay. Or who, you know, whose charisma didn't work on her the way it worked on other people. Okay. So Faye Resnick's book comes out, it causes a big scandal because of its potential role in biasing the jury even though it would bias them toward the prosecution. So it's interesting to think about how much of the scandal is based on not what Faye Resnick has written about the contents of Nicole Brown Simpson's marriage but about who Faye Resnick is because she's a like relatively new Los Angeles socialite who is Mm -hmm. considered kind of new money and she's three days into cocaine addiction rehab at the time of Nicole's murder. Okay. And... What everyone focuses on when this book comes out and what everyone has focused on since then in a way that made me think when I read it that it really wouldn't have any actual content and be surprised as hell when it did, Mm -hmm. what everyone focuses on is the fact that it's scandalous and it talks about Nicole partying and having sex Mm. and there's gay stuff in it.
1: Wait, what? (laughs) What? I just like sat up in my chair. What? What's? What's this? Uh
0: huh. <laughs> it is basically Faye Resnick. Right. Well, let me. Let me. I'll actually just read it to you. This is a really great passage, and I think it's like what people thought of in 1994 when they thought of why they didn't care for Faye Resnick, and it's for this same reason that I enjoy her tremendously. <laughs> so, she and Nicole have gone out dancing. It's spring of 1994 and then they go to Fay's place and Fay writes I was in a mellow mood that night as I walked through the door I hit the stereo switch Madonna's erotica filled the house and pinpoints of candlelight glowed in every room
1: amazing god
0: I loved my house I had decorated it to reflect the wildly romantic exotic persona that I rarely revealed it's done in gold leaf and black very Egyptian with sculptures downfilled sofas with tassels and fringes Light carpeting, zebra skins, black and gold (laughs) Roman and Egyptian chairs, massive oriental screen, and a magnificent oriental desk. The black and gold motif carries into the bedroom. My custom-made bed is Roman, also black and gold, covered with overstuffed down pillows and a wonderful bedroll. The whole place is an expression of romance. She's stalling for time. What is what is all this? <laughs> Why do we need all this scene setting? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel Boy. like I'm watching soap nut. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole had never seen my place totally ablaze with candlelight. When we walked in, she said, wow, it's so sensual. I laughed. My ex-husband, Paul, had said almost the same thing years ago when we were living in San Francisco. He'd spent $100,000 decorating a huge bath complete with a jacuzzi. Sometimes I'd go there in the middle of the night when Paul was asleep and spend hours alone. One night... Paul woke up at about three o'clock in the morning, not finding me in bed. He came to the bathroom and opened the door. He gasped when he saw the room bathed in the light of 15 large candles. The kikuzzi had rose petals scattered over the water, and I was sitting in it, reading Sigmund Freud. As As New Age music filled the room, Paul stood in the doorway a moment, drinking it all in. Then he stepped inside, closed the door, and said, my God this is the most <laughs> sensual scene I've ever seen in my life
1: <laughs> it's like porn movie dialogue this is awesome I
0: love it it's, 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 uh, it's erotica dialogue and this is like made fun of in the press later on like Faye Resnick's decor choices and I think this sums up kind of how she's seen in the media in 94 she's like she's a party girl she's extravagant mm-hmm. she's rich she's new money she's into Freud <laughs> And, you know, she's, she's also someone who like, who writes a book where she's like, yeah, I was in treatment for cocaine addiction and I was freebasing and stuff. Okay. I like her. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. And she also just, you know, throughout, throughout this book, so much of any story is hindsight. Like she's writing this about her best friend and she's writing it after her murder. So like mm-hmm. you're going to give hindsight a lot of benefit of the doubt at that point. Mm-hmm. But what she talks about here is, you know, is meeting Nicole and, and immediately understanding that she's, she's carrying a lot of pain with her and that mm. she like that she even Nicole doesn't know how Nicole feels. Yeah. And it seems, you know, it just comes across in this book as someone who has like an unusual amount of emotional intelligence for the cast mm. of characters that we're looking at here. <laughs> and so what happens after they get to, to Faye's Sanctual House mm-hmm. and Nicole goes to Faye's closet and picks out a nighty, and they are sitting on the bed talking and then Faye says, Nick suddenly leaned over and started kissing me. Mm -hmm. Then she writes, Nicole pulled back and looked into my eyes. I said, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how. I was in a state of shock, but the shock wasn't strong enough to make me stop, despite underlying apprehension. Mm -hmm. I was enjoying this. Then I wasn't scared anymore. This was Nicole. It was wonderful being with her. It was more a spiritual bonding than anything else. Mm -hmm. I just felt like all the barriers were down between us. It was okay. Then she writes that... Uh, They fall asleep and they wake up and see a flashlight in the window and they're like, oh, my God, it's O.J. It's O.J. again. It is O.J. again, spying on us again. But it's just the police because they're playing Madonna's erotica too loud. Oh, nice. And so they turn it down and laugh and fall asleep. And so, yeah, that's that's the story. Uh, well, I'll, I'll ask you, what do you think 1994 media did with this information?
1: Well, this is what I'm thinking as you're saying it. It's like this kind of nice moment of communion. Yeah. Between two people that are both clearly going through some shit and maybe i mean who knows what was going through their heads but it's like it seems like just a nice moment of affection between two people
0: and it feels true to like how people end up making out with their friends you know and how you can also have moments where like the only way to access the kind of emotional intimacy that you need is sexually Yeah, yeah
1: i mean i don't know the spoilers but it's You know, one of the themes we keep coming across in the show is that the actual worst sin that you can do in public life is be tacky. It's not necessarily being immoral or being cruel. It's things like I was reading Freud in my hot tub and that sort of aesthetic objection that people have to you as a person ends up overshadowing everything else, right? Like if you're a woman with big hair and you say like Mm -hmm. a really famous preacher raped me, all they're going to hear is like, oh, mm-hmm. some bimbo says there was something, something sexual, something. But look how big her hair is. Like, yeah. Look at her shoulder pads. Like that's... Ignore what she's saying. Exactly. And so yeah. I just, from my own cynicism with all of these stories, it's like the fucking details about like the candles and the music and the hot tub are like so... There's such catnip to people that want to throw
0: out this story. Yeah. And then the fact that like at the crime scene after Nicole's murder, the police find all these candles around the tub and like this is written about a lot. And also used by the defense as proof that like it's because she's expecting a sex guest. But even if people aren't making that argument, it's like she had so many candles (laughs) in her bathroom. So when you think about it, the murder is not that sad you, like what and like elizabeth Wurzel, like writing about it like because m- mentions the candles like not even making the argument that they're tacky but in a list of things that she's clearly calling tacky that's not even fucking tacky that's actually delightful candles are nice yeah <laughs> what the hell <laughs> And it's like, well, you know, sometimes you have to beat up your wife or you, like, stalk her a little because you've just gotten divorced and you see her as your property. Mm. And it's, like, understandable behavior. And it's, like, it's not great, but, like, it's it happens, you right. know. Right. But <laughs> if you have candles yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're a woman <laughs> and you make out with other women, mm-hmm. then, like... Who do you think you are? So
1: does Faye Resnick in her book also describe a lot of this abuse, too? So she's corroborating Nicole's general account of, like, how terrible this relationship
0: was? Oh, yeah. The same (laughs) networks that are like, we've forgotten about Nicole. We're like, and meanwhile, crackhead Faye Resnick. Right buying more candles. It's like, well, she right. did the thing that you're complaining about no one doing. Like, can you yeah. hear yeah. what you're saying? Right.
1: Like she actually is remembering Nicole.
0: I think the thing I most love about Faye Resnick's book is that it it feels to me like Faye Resnick, you know, maybe it has like occurred to her that the press would become fixated on the lesbian part of the book or the part where Faye Resnick talks about her own cocaine use or says, Mm. quote, Nicole did cocaine once in a blue moon, but she did like her tequila shots or talks about going out dancing with Nicole because that's not allowed. Mm. Or the fact that Nicole enjoys sex and is a sexual person. Mm. You know, I think she probably had some awareness of the fact that these were things that people would have a hard time handling. But what I also feel is that that was not her focus if she was writing this. I feel like what her testimony is about ultimately is she has this genuine good faith desire to help the public understand her friend Nicole Mm -hmm. and wants them to do that. And in order to do that, she has to explain that Nicole wasn't sexually satisfied by other men after she'd had this amazing sexual connection with OJ Simpson. Like, it's kind of like Faye Resnick was like a lawyer who just brought in evidence that she didn't realize would make the jury hate her client.
1: It's fascinating,
0: (laughs) you know, because it was so hard in the 90s. And
1: I think to some extent today to actually say the phrase out loud that sometimes people who have sex and use drugs get murdered and sometimes people who are kind of tacky are correct. Like that's something that we still need to remind ourselves about.
0: And also like nice ladies and good moms go out dancing and use cocaine. I mean, it's also like it is beyond hilarious to me that like in Los Angeles in the early 90s, there's this like response on behalf of media people who were in charge of making news of like using cocaine. Right. Unimaginable. Like who right. could imagine using cocaine? Cocaine, and it's like, right. are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, who can imagine doing
1: the verb that is most associated with the previous decade that we have just lived through? <laughs> like, yeah, how dare you?
0: Yeah, and I mean, another another part of the story is that Faye goes to rehab for cocaine addiction because Nicole helps organize an intervention for hmm. her, and it's like, we love you, and you're a friend, and you need to go to rehab, and I hmm. will quit drinking and doing drugs with you and we will be clean together. Wow. Two things that people are unanimous on when they talk about Nicole is that she was a great mom and she was a great friend. Hmm. Like, that's really how she seems to be remembered by Hmm. people, that she was like someone who showed up for other people, which is, Hmm. to me, especially amazing because she wasn't really able to show up for herself.
1: Well, also, I mean, the whole lesbian, quote-unquote, scandalous lesbian thing sort of plays Mm -hmm. into this. It's a way of downplaying nicole's friendship and support that she's offering and receiving to this female friend of hers Mm -hmm. we're like ooh, lesbians rather than seeing these as complicated people who maybe very specific nouns don't necessarily apply to
0: yeah and and just like you know and faye resnick is like she's someone who lacks the self-awareness to realize the public wants an apology from her (laughs) that if she wants to come you know with this message of like Think about my friend and understand her as a person and like know her and love her. Like, she essentially would have had to like scrub her account of anything that made it real. Yeah. And not be writing about her friend, but be constructing like a perfect victim right. narrative. One of the other things that she talks about that the media, of course, fixates on is something that many of Nicole's other friends have talked about elsewhere, which is that after Nicole and OJ finally got divorced, she did have an affair with Marcus Allen, okay. which she has denied and that she really liked him she really just felt good around him Mm -hmm. and that she was seeing him again in may in the weeks before she was killed Mm. and again it's like you know it's it's like the real story is like this deep dark sad story but the part that people fixate on is nicole talking about how marcus is the only man aside from oj who has really sexually satisfied her and she tells a story about She and Nicole are walking along the beach, and Nicole picks up a piece of driftwood and is like, "This is Marcus." And Faye Resnick means realizes that she's referring to like Girth. Oh my God! Okay. And so after that, for like weeks or months, one of them will, according to Faye, just have to say "driftwood," and they'll all start laughing. And this is just like Faye Resnick. Just includes this. It's just like an innocent detail. It's just like. Nicole was attached to OJ for many reasons and sex was one of them Mm -hmm. and she also you know turned to men sexually for validation Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that she was drawn to Marcus Allen in the last weeks of her life despite you know the danger was because of the driftwood thing like I feel like that's what what Faye Resnick just like wants us to know yeah (laughs) and maybe didn't realize that people would be like so you're telling me right that this alleged victim yeah. had sex and liked
1: it. And, like, spoke about it, like, spoke about it in a way that we don't want women to speak about it. <laughs> yeah. So what is so what is Faye Resnick's description of sort of the last days, like, the run-up to the murder? Yeah. Like, what is the narrative?
0: So this is uh, April of 1994, so it's right after... OJ and Nicole have reconciled and now they're on vacation in Cabo with a bunch of their friends, including Faye Resnick, and have just been like loving and all over each other and really happy. And Faye writes that Nicole says, Faye, I think this is it. We're getting back together for good. And they hug and everyone's happy. (laughs) And then Faye writes, The very next night, OJ screwed everything up. We were all at Carlos and Carly's, and OJ suddenly started to flirt with a trampy-looking young blonde. He did it openly, enjoying himself hugely, not seeming to care that everyone was watching. I looked at Nicole for a reaction. She looked back at me and Chris, who was sitting with us. Chris and I both said something like, can you believe this? Nicole said nothing. I knew my friend so well. She was blocking and nobody could block unpleasantness like Nicole. <laughs> the next day, most of our group hung out down at the beach, snorkeling and playing with the kids. Suddenly, Oge started telling everybody that Nicole's biggest fear in life is frogs. Most of our friends knew about Nicole's phobia so strong, so overwhelming that anyone who knew her well enough wouldn't tease her about it. She loathed frogs. Frogs. OK. I get that. I am very freaked out by frogs. Okay. I remain haunted by pictures I've seen of like a Chinese child holding a frog as big as he is. Like that's I don't like that. Really? OK. I get it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's how I feel about abandonment. So
0: yeah, sure. <laughs> So Faye continues, O.K. acted as if it was the biggest joke in the world. He told everybody, hey, can you believe this? It's just so ironic that my wife's biggest fear in life is frogs, and I've ended up starring in a TV series called The Frogmen." O.K. O.J. threw back his head and laughed and looked at us all with his happy, smiling face. That's what made his next words seem so incongruous, so unsettling. Hey, baby, he jived at Nicole. I'm the frog man. Now, what do you think about that? Two minutes later, OJ got up and left. This time, Nicole wasn't blocking. She turned to me and said, I don't think that's funny. He finds this to be funny. This is not funny at all. It's cruel. I'm afraid this man will kill me someday. Mm. The next day, OJ flew to Puerto Rico for filming on The Frogmen. That evening, we went to the Palmilla restaurant for dinner. As we sipped cappuccino, Nicole floored me when she said calmly, that's it. I can't do it. I can't be with OJ. Seriously, (laughs) it's over. I feel that if we get back together, he'll end up killing me. I don't think he's changed. Wow. And it seems like after this, she really was like, got closer and closer to decisively ending things Mm -hmm. and did so fairly soon after. And what feels real to me about why that happened is that it was like such a tiny thing. The frog thing, you mean? Yeah. Like somehow, don't you feel like it's the small things that reveal the truth more somehow? Totally. Yeah. What is it about the frog thing, do you think, for her? I can just see it being so fucking belittling.
1: It's really not that much to ask. Yeah. If someone says like, right. hey, you know, I'm afraid of like whatever toothpaste, like it's really not that big of a deal to just not bring up toothpaste around somebody. Like it's basic human decency. Right. But he can't even clear that bar, like the lowest imaginable bar. It's like, just don't tease people yeah. about their frogs. It's fine. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not that hard.
0: Yeah, you're right. Like it, it's just like, it's, it's such a minimal thing. And then it's almost like the big stuff you can excuse more easily, you're like, I was wasn't myself and I was right. full of rage and I couldn't control it. And but then if like if as if yourself is still just yeah. being mean. And it's just like seizing the remotest possible opportunity to be mean. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So after that, they describes her as having really strengthened resolve. And then let me pull up my timeline. I have a color coded timeline. Oh my God. Yeah. It's deeper shades of pink for increasing danger levels. Oh Jesus Christ. So they come back from Cabo. And after that, she's like, I'm done. And then, you know, some more significant things happen. She goes to her nephew's first communion on May 7th. And on May 8th, she makes out her will. Mm -hmm. On May 14th, it's her and OJ's daughter, Sydney's first communion. And OJ doesn't come, which she's, according to people who are interviewed later really hurt by. Again, not that much
1: to fucking ask.
0: Yeah. How many first communions is your eldest child going to have, Orenthal James? Clear the bar. <laughs> but then she gets pneumonia um the week of her birthday, which is May 19th. <laughs> and OJ launches a charm offenses and is like taking the kids to and from school, which like because he's he does so little as a parent is like, wow. Yeah. And he brings her, sees candies, which are her favorite, and gives her mm-hmm. a bracelet. And And Faye Resnick is observing this and is like, wow, like, this is a godsend for OK because Nicole literally can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he can, like, forcibly charm her.
1: So he's doing the equivalent of, like, visiting Iowa over and over again, like, going to state fairs and shit, just like <laughs> campaigning.
0: Gets corndog after corndog. dog. <laughs> And then she she basically breaks it off as soon as she's well enough. Hmm. She breaks it off on May 22nd. She gives back the bracelet. She tells her friends that she told him she couldn't be bought. Like it's a very titanic moment. Yeah. Also, while she's sick, Ron Ship, her LAPD friend, talks to her on the phone and feels feels concerned to her, and of course knows a lot about the history of abuse in the marriage, a lot more than most other people, mm. and wants to visit her. But still, for whatever reason, is like I should really I should ask OJ for permission before I visit Nicole. What? And he calls OJ, and he's like, No, it's 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 fine. You don't need to see her. <laughs> and he's like, Okay, uh, Ron. <laughs> I know. Ron Ah. is a complicated, Ron is a complicated person. Come on, Ron. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, after that, her friends all say, like, she really seems done. She seems happy. She Mm. seems like she's moving on. Mm. And OJ launches a charm offensive at Paula Barbieri, the Julia Roberts looking lady, to try and get her back. Okay. And toward the end of the first week of June, a few things happen. Nicole tells a few people that one of the keys to her house has gone missing from her keychain. Oh, shit. And she's very worried that OJ has it. Oh, shit. On June 5th, she calls her realtor and also a friend of hers named Jean McKenna to give her the news that OJ has just told her that he's going to report her to the IRS. What? Which she seems to decide to do after it's clear to him that she's really not coming back. Oh. And I guess, you know, to either punish her or... Maybe in a last ditch attempt to get her to flee back into his arms. Jeez. Mm -hmm. And what he's going to report her for is that she had bought this um, apartment on Bundy Drive, Mm -hmm. which she was very proud that she was able to do with the money that she made from the sale of the condo in San Francisco, because she like negotiated the purchase herself, which is like a big adult thing to do, Mm -hmm. and had declared... Rockingham as her primary residence on her taxes and the Bundy condo as an acquisition that she was going to rent out. So OJ decided to report her for using the Bundy Drive condo as her primary residence, which means that she would owe $90,000, which is all the money that she has in the bank. So he's essentially vindictively bankrupting her. Oh, my God. And this only deepens, according to people who are interviewed, her resolve to end the relationship and, and move on because yeah and this is what faye resnick theorizes maybe nicole can stand for him to attack her over and over again but now he's attacking the kids because she's they don't have any money right they're gonna have to move again and so on june 7th nicole calls sojourn shelter which is a domestic violence shelter in l a and the person who takes her call says that her ex husband has been calling her, begging her to come back and also stalking her and then he told her several times in the past that if he caught her with another man he 'd kill her mm. and on June tenth Nicole and her realtor drive around the neighborhood, looking at properties that are within a few minutes drive of okay 's house mm-hmm. and when they kind of have driven around for a bit and not seen anything that she wants. Nicole says, take me to Malibu. And they look at a house on a hill overlooking the ocean that Nicole can reasonably afford. And she used to ride her horse on the beach. She's an OC surfer girl. Mm -hmm. One of the things that OJ was so critical about was like her canceling at the last minute on events or like not liking doing celebrity hobnobbing stuff with him, not liking being part of the kind of Hollywood scene that he was Mm -hmm. trying to be part of because Mm -hmm. she just like kind of wanted to be with her family or be with her friends or like you know, have more of a homey lifestyle. And it feels like this is... Yeah. She wanted to be in her sweatpants. She wanted to wear a sweatpants sometimes. Yeah. And gain more than seven pounds. <laughs> yeah. Give her a fucking break. And that, yeah. And that they like, they went out to Malibu and she was like, I like this. Mm. I, Nicole, like this.
1: Like me. Yeah. It's like a tiny little form of emancipation.
0: Yeah. And the way Jane McKenna describes it later is that they, you know, they look at the house and Nicole really likes it. And she just says... You know what Jean I can do this. <laughs> and so June 12th, Faye Resnick is in rehab. Mm-hmm. Before she went, she was talking to Nicole. She was just like, you know, why don't we just get out of town? Why don't we just go? We can go to Cabo for a while. We can go wherever we want. We have plenty of money. Cuz like she's she's feeling stalked and surveilled as well. <laughs> like anyone who's close to Nicole is <laughs> is kind of part of part of OJ's network at this point. Yikes. She's like, why don't we just get away? And Nicole's like, no, we can't. No, we can't do that because Sydney has a dance recital on June 12th. And so Sydney is dancing to the music of Footloose. I really want to know what music from Footloose it is, but I haven't found that out. Okay. I love it when I say a detail that I think you think is totally irrelevant. You're like, okay, yes, next thing. No,
1: I I literally don't know any song from Footloose. (laughs) I've never seen it. So like nothing, nothing is going to have any metaphorical significance to me. You don't
0: know the main song from Footloose? No,
1: I'm an old millennial.
0: Footloose came out in 1984. I don't
1: know. I don't know. I don't know the
0: footloose. <laughs> anyway, okay, so Sydney's dancing to the music of Footloose and OJ shows up but comes late. He doesn't sit near them and Nicole doesn't talk to him. Faye says that Nicole tells her that Nicole said to OJ, "Fuck off. Get away from us. Get out of my life. You're not welcome with this family anymore." Mm-hmm. And then after their recital, they go out to the parking lot. OJ tries to get the Browns to pose for a family photo. That mm-hmm. doesn't work out. Mm. Nicole and, and the Browns are going to go to have dinner at Mezzaluna, which is an Italian restaurant in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And OJ asked to join and Nicole tells him that he can't join. OK. And basically like bars him from the family table. Hmm. And according to another source in Sheila Weller's book, OJ tells his friend Ron Fishman, I'm going to get her, but good. Jesus Christ. And again, it's like it's a little thing. He wants OJ wants to come to dinner, but he can't come to dinner. They don't want him to come to dinner. Right.
1: But within toxic relationships, every little slight becomes a metaphor for something larger because you lose the ability to talk about things in their actual proportion. Everything becomes like a front in this greater war.
0: Yeah. And it's like it's it's rejection, right? It doesn't matter how tiny a rejection it is. He's being rejected and that's unacceptable. Yeah. I think the logic of this is like it's not that you look at the action the person is actually doing and judge the action. It's that you feel what you feel and you think whatever this person is doing must have caused me to have this feeling and it must be that bad mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I have to punish them that much right. for it. Right. So they don't let OJ come to dinner with them. He leaves and Nicole and her kids and the Browns go to dinner at Mezzaluna where there's a waiter named Ron Goldman, who Nicole knows slightly. Nicole mainly knows him because he's a friend of two guys about his age. They're all about 25 named Jeff and Mike. Mm -hmm. And Nicole has kind of hung out with them more and they have gone out to dinner together and she lets them take turns driving her Ferrari to (laughs) to and from dinner, which I think is really cute. Yeah. (laughs) From what Jeff and Mike say and what Nicole's other friends say to Sheila Weller, it seems like... They're like the David LeBons in her life now. Okay. They're like...
1: Friends, platonic friends, hanging out.
0: They're, yeah, they're guy friends. And they're also like guys in their early 20s who are having the kind of young adulthood that, that she didn't experience. Yeah. And the detail I know about their friendship that I really love the most is that she would call Jeff and Mike and say, what are you guys doing? And whoever she called would say, well, Melrose is on in half an hour. And then she would go over and watch Melrose Place with them. Sweatpants! Sweat this pants. is the sweatpants dream that she's always had. Yeah, that's all anybody wants. All anyone wants is to watch Melrose place with Jeff and Mike and yes. not be stalked and and gain more than seven pounds. My God! But I guess love that little prosaic detail, and I love how like in the you know in the press and and at trial, it's you know the kind of impression that the public kept of of Nicole is like she was a party girl and she was out in right. her tight dresses and being sexual and doing cocaine and etc and it's like sometimes like yeah and but also she just she would i guess love the idea that she would like call them up and and like come over to watch melrose place with, yeah. with these two guys
1: even party girls get to be yeah. more than one thing i feel like that's
0: generalizable <laughs> we're all so many things so anyway so they're at the restaurant and she says hi to ron who's a friend of her melrose place friends mm-hmm. faye has written that Nicole kind of had a crush on Ron and that Faye felt it was fated that they would sleep together one day mm-hmm. because Ron is like, I don't know if he's done modeling or not. He's cute though. I <laughs> mean, there's some photos. He's cute. Oh yeah, no, he's he's gorgeous. Which I think also doesn't work out well for him in the media. But mm. she says hi to Ron and she has dinner with her family at Mezzaluna and are, they're talking about If she gets this Malibu house, then everyone can come visit her in Malibu and all the family members can be together. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just this air of possibility. Things could really change for the better. Like good things are really possible. Mm -hmm. She says goodbye to her family and takes the kids to Benning Jerry's for ice cream Mm -hmm. and then takes the kids home. And then according to Faye Resnick's book, they have a call sometime after nine. And Faye says that the last thing that Nicole says to her is, I love you and I'll visit you in rehab tomorrow. And can I bring you anything like C's candy, maybe? Mm. Faye talks about undergoing hypnosis to try and recall every single detail of that phone call. Mm. But you just can't remember every single thing. And then they ended the phone call. And apparently after she talks to Faye, by my estimation of the timeline, she gets a call from her mother who dropped her glasses outside the restaurant uh, and who wants Nicole to pick them up tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. so Nicole calls the restaurant and catches Ron Goldman and asks him to bring them by because her house is only a few minutes away. Oh, And so he takes them and goes to his house and changes and then heads over to her house. Okay. And the next thing that anyone hears is sometime between around 10.15 and around 10.30, her dog, Cato, started to make a sound that one witness described as a plaintive whale. Okay. And... The next day, Denise Brown gets a call telling the family that Nicole has been murdered and she says it was OJ. Whoa. And Faye Resnick the next day is informed at rehab that Nicole has been murdered and says it was OJ. Wow. And the story that we all know begins. Hmm.
1: I don't know where to end this. I have an ending question. Okay. That we can do like a, a clever little to be continued with. Oh, boy. So what what strikes me about this entire story is that the way that you've described it, it's actually a
0: pretty open
1: and shut case.
0: That's what everyone thought. Mike. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tell that to poor Marsha Clark. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Because it's like, how much more evidence do you need? Right. Like even without the physical evidence,
0: what, what I feel is like if someone else killed her, It's only because they got there somehow first. Yeah. You know, (laughs) like if someone else would have murdered her, it would be like they only would have managed it by beating OJ to it. I mean, not that this was preordained, but like, yeah, you look at you look at the ramp up to it and it feels like dominoes. Yeah. I mean, it's really clear. Yeah. And yet... I've also, I
1: know from your text messages that you also think that, like, the verdict in the case wasn't necessarily wrong or wasn't necessarily unfair. And so mm-hmm. it sounds like there's sort of two different stories going on where there's the sort of personal story of OJ and Nicole. And there's the larger story of everything else that was going on in L.A. at the time.
0: Yeah. And I think that, I mean, with the the way that we're approaching this is kind of showing us as as we're getting into the story that like a trial is in some way very separate from the events that it's about. Hmm. Her life ended on June 12th, 1994, and everything that happened after that, she wasn't a part of. Right. I don't know. Yeah. And I think this gets into the question of like, what is a trial for? What is a verdict for? Mm hmm and to what extent i mean I, I another thing i would say about this verdict is that it makes us think about how the law is not just prescriptive but expressive mm. you know i mean a verdict is not always primarily about the the case right <laughs> or about the the crime that precipitated the trial
1: right From my understanding of what I know about the trial, that's basically what ends up happening is it becomes about all this other stuff.
0: Spoiler. Spoiler.
1: (laughs) So I think with that spoiler, now that we've ruined our next couple episodes, uh, I think we're gonna leave it there. Yeah. So yes, join us next time. Hopefully in your sweatpants. You have the right.
0: Yeah. Wear some sweatpants. Gain eight pounds. Read some Freud, light some candles. Yeah, read some Freud and and light a candle for Nicole.